Well, good morning. It's an honor to share from God's Word with you this morning and to wrap up our series in the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. Over the past 10 weeks, we have been led through this great psalm, which finds itself right in the middle of our Bibles and reveals a clear and distinguishable theme, praise to God for the provision of his word. And Pastor Chris has highlighted the acrostic structure of the psalm, which employs 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet to help organize the psalm, and it's 176 verses. And we've seen that each one of the 22 letters ushers in eight verses of songs celebrating the word of God and God's goodness and providing his people with instruction for living. Now, acrostic poems like this often functioned in in ancient Israelite society and and literature as memory devices to aid in either private or public recitation. This psalm literally praises God with everything is God from Aleph to Tav, or in other words, from A to Z. The psalmist attempts to use all the words in a language by using all potential words to marshal praise to God for his word. And this morning, our focus will be on the final two letters, which are sin or shin, and its reading really depends on where the vowel is put on the consonant, and the final letter, which is tav. But before we get, into, get ahead of ourselves, we need to commence our Hebrew alphabet pop quiz. <laughs> Friends, 22 letters now. Are we ready for this? All right. There's going to be some help behind us over here. It's an open book test. Some of you like that one. Ready? We got Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zion, Het, Tet, Yod, Kaf, Lamed, Mem, Nun, Samek, Ayan, Pei, Sade, Kof, Resh, Shin, and Tav. Man, I feel like I was the only one up here. Listen, when, so, you know, I feel like I, we're going to have to mark you on a bell curve. You know, what? perhaps now, though, what would be appropriate is to read the entire psalm to make sure we didn't forget anything that Pastor Chris taught us. Some of you nervously laughed. Now, that would actually take quite, quite the time to get through, and uh, we're not going uh, to do that together this morning, but there's a funny historical story I want to share with you. George Wyshert was the Bishop of Edinburgh in the 17th century, and Wyshert was condemned to death for his faith. But when he was on the scaffold awaiting his hanging, he made a use of a custom that allowed the condemned person to choose one psalm to be sung. You guessed which one he chose. He chose Psalm 119, and before two-thirds of the psalm was, was sung, his, uh, uh, his pardon arrived and his life was spared. True story. It really paid for him to know his Bible. So you're welcome. So we're going to focus uh, this morning on the last two sections in verses 161 and 176. I'm going to invite you to stand to read God's word. Uh, and, uh, and so we're going to read in one voice, beginning at verse 161. Ready? Let's read. Rulers persecute me without cause, but my heart trembles at your word. 
I rejoice in your promise like one who finds great spoil. I hate and detest falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous laws. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I wait for your salvation, Lord, and I follow your commands. I obey your statutes, for I love them greatly. I obey your precepts and your statutes, for all my ways are known to you. May my cry come before you, Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise, for you teach me your decrees. May my tongue sing of your word, for all your commands are righteous. May your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, Lord, and your law gives me delight. Let me live that I might praise you, and may your laws sustain me. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. Let's pray. Father, I just want to say thank you for your word. I want to say thank you for our pastor who has led us through this psalm. And Lord, even as we come to this ending point of this great psalm, thank you for challenging us and encouraging us. And Lord, this morning, you've got something for us, and I pray that you would speak to each one uniquely and specially. Jesus, thank you so much. Lord, I'll do my best, but Lord, I need your strength and your anointing. And I thank you for each one here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Thank you. Well done reading. You made up for the last one. So in Pastor Chris's opening message, many, many weeks ago, he pointed out from the text that the psalmist was being wrongfully treated by those with positions of power. While the psalm doesn't tell us who the psalmist is or the specifics of his situation, at the outset of the psalm, there is an indication of hostility toward him, and he opens up about his trouble. Verse 23 said, The rulers sit together and slander me. Your servant will meditate on your decrees. And in our ending section of the psalm, these leaders have moved on from scheming to implementing their plots. The pressure has been turned up, and as we learned from Pastor Chris's message last week, the psalmist feels like he is drowning, and he desperately cries out to God for help in his distress. There's a noticeable transition, though, in the shin section that we just read. The psalmist claims to be innocent of any action that should have provoked their hostility. And while the pressure has been turned up in his life, he reiterates his trust in God's word and his commitment to live according to it, even in the face of hostility. I like the way that the New Living Translation says it. Powerful people harass me without cause, but my heart trembles only at your word. What an, emo what an emotional roller coaster he is on. But that's very much like us when troubling realities come our way, isn't it? At least in my life it is. There's this process of sorting out our thoughts, emotions, and faith in the situation. And one day, one day I'm like, God, where are you? And then the next I'm like, Lord, thank you for your peace in the midst of the storm. And then the next I may be like, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Anyone else brave enough to admit your emotions? and your volatility during stressful and pressure-filled experiences. 
And I find so much encouragement in knowing that I'm not alone and that the psalmist experienced life with all of its hardships and challenges like we do. The thing we observe, though, is that the psalmist lands on the trust in God's side. See, he's gone through some trials in his life already and has discovered, like the great gospel singer Andre Crouch, you might know this one, through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend on his word. This kind of trust clearly evidences an authentic encounter with God through his word to express such a level of trust at such a difficult time in his life. And so I think it's worthwhile to unpack what God has given us and how it is meant to serve us in our lives. And from this morning's reading, we notice that the psalmist sheds light on his experience from God's word by describing it as, as great treasure or great spoil. It said in verse 162, I rejoice in your promise like one who finds great spoil. Or in, like in other, other versions, it says, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. And the psalmist loved God's word as some people love, tre- love treasure. He knew it was precious and enriching to life. For him, it brought great delight and hope. Now, have you ever, have you ever put on a coat for the first time in the season to discover some cash left in the pocket? That excitement you get knowing that you'll be able to go out for lunch that day? Or you're doing some spring cleaning and discover a gift card to your favorite store or restaurant. Boy, doesn't that change your countenance for the rest of the day? Or maybe you heard that, or maybe you head to the store, you see something in the flyer, and you're like, I got to get me some of that. And and you go, and you get close, and, and, and they still have some, and you get excited. It's a pretty good feeling. I had a similar experience recently. I was looking to buy a new coat. And I had browsed through a number of stores unsuccessfully, but on one occasion, when I wasn't even really intending to shop, I just happened to spot a store and I thought, hey, it's worth a, worth a look. You probably know where the story is going. And I'm walking through the aisles and then I stop in my track and it's almost like time stands still. There's almost, it almost seems to be a little glow coming from the rack. There's this gush of adrenaline pouring into my veins. Could it be? Is this the coat that has been destined for me? On it goes, and it's like love at first sight. It's warm embrace, it's just perfect. We're meant for one another. But things get even better. Ruffling around uh, in in the sleeve to pull out the price tag, I, I see a red sticker on top of the white price tag. It is on clearance, friends, and I've been praising the Lord with arms high and heart abandoned. Price is so good, it's a sin to leave it there. (laughs) What a good feeling, eh? See, you've probably been there. That excitement after finding something you really wanted, and what do you do next? Well, maybe you're like me, and you get so excited about sharing your experience of the treasure that you have found that you spend the next few days recounting the story to anybody who listens. (laughs) And those who know me know I I get super pumped about a good deal. It's amazing how we do this for such insignificant items in our lives that truthfully lose their luster very quickly. 
But in Psalm 119, 162, in the midst of stressful time with hostile people around him, the psalmist rejoices in God's word and describes it as a treasure to him. Why? Because he experienced the faithfulness of the Lord to him in the past, and he knows that God will carry him through the present challenges. And I wonder, friends, have you experienced what the psalmist is getting at? Can you testify of the impact of God's word uh, that it has made on your life? Would you describe it as a treasure? And if so, are you continuing to treasure God's word in the other areas of your life as new struggles ensue? I was reading the book of Proverbs recently. I came across these verses that speak to the value of God's word. It says this, it says, A house is built by wisdom and becomes strong through sense. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with all sorts of precious riches and, and valuables. And while we'd likely all agree that a physical house takes a lot of wisdom to build, here a house refers to a person's life. The writer of Proverbs is saying that by applying biblical wisdom to all areas of our lives, we enrich ourselves. So if this is so enriching, to live according to God's wisdom, then why doesn't everyone do it? Why aren't more people testifying to its validity? Well, because it takes faith to apply it, and it takes faith to stay the course. There is risk involved, and not everyone is willing to take God's word for the treasure that it is. And while we can't control others and what they do, the relevant question for us today is, what are we doing with it? There is a very interesting story in the Old Testament that helps to illustrate this point. In 2 Kings 7, there's this unique story of four lepers and their step of faith. Like the, like, 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 let me provide a little context. The Aramean army has laid siege on the entire city of Samaria which was the capital of the, uh, of the nation of Israel, or the northern kingdom at that time. With the Aramean army encamped around the city for months, the people inside the city are reduced to starvation and cannibalism. It's a brutal and very des desperate situation. The despairing king of Israel decides to strike out at God by executing Elisha, God's prophet. And Elisha pledges that despite the king's lack of faith, the next day, the finest of foods will be sold cheaply in the starving city. And sure enough, the next day, something spectacular happens. But before we get to the spectacular, the story spotlights four lepers. Lepers. And as you might remember, the lepers were outcasts in society who depended on the benevolence of others. They depended on gifts of food from the people. But now, they're worse off than everybody in the famine People don't have any food for themselves, never mind extra to give to those on the fringes of society. And the lepers' desperate hunger makes them step out in faith and are therefore the first to discover the truth of Elijah's prediction. Now let me read to you this short but fascinating account. It says this, Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the, of the city gate. They said to each other, Why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there, and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. 
If they kill us, then we die. At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. And when they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and the Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The, the man who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents, and ate and drank. Then they took silver, gold, and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. Then they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. Fascinating story. And here's a couple of observations story of, from the story that I want to point out. It's amazing how these outcasts, overlooked by everyone, they were the ones who discovered the treasure. And friends, this is quite typical of how God operates. While most disregard the weak and lowly, God invites them. We see this in the Christmas story with God's invitation to the shepherds who were poor and outcasts in Jewish society. And they were at the birth of the Savior. And then God invites fishermen who were hardworking, but they certainly were not the sophisticated men in Jewish society. And this attribute of God is something that the Apostle Paul also picks up on when he reminds the Corinthians of who, who uh, they were and, 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 uh, uh, and, and to not get prideful after God's work in them. And Paul reminds them in 1 Corinthians 1.27, it says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And so, friend, if, the, if you this morning don't, don't feel like you can make the cut for some reason, just know that God has a track record of revealing himself and using some odd characters. And you're looking at one of them right now. See, when I think of who I was prior to my encounter with Jesus, I'm grateful for God's ability to use the foolish and the weak. In high school, I was more concerned about how cool I was than my future. So I didn't bother with my academics. I, I literally hung out in a section of the school that was called the No Future Corner. We thought we were so cool. Goodness. Until high school was nearing an end and I had no clue where my life was headed. And that's what brought me to my knees and to Jesus. So why does God invite those into, in, in the margins of, into his story? Well, I think it's has a lot to do with the fact that the lowly have already admitted that their lives have become unmanageable. They aren't in denial and instead are willing to take a step of faith toward God's promises found in his word. In other words, they're sick and tired of being sick and tired and are open to the message of hope. And Friends, for us to appreciate God's word as the treasure that it is, we need to recognize that we don't have it all figured out but that God does. And we have to humble ourselves to admit that we're in need of help. In our story, the, the lepers were desperate. They figured we're already dead. We've got nothing to lose. So they took the risk of going to the Aramean army's encampment. And as you can imagine, that was a big step of faith. But it was worth it. 
Let me ask, have you taken that kind of step of faith toward Jesus? What's going on in your life at the moment that you are still trying to do yourself or are in denial about? What kinds of behaviors are you still justifying? Friends, let me tell you that by minimizing your problem or rationalizing your behaviors or blaming others for your issue uh, or hurtful memory or taking on the identity of a victim, you limit your experience in discovering the treasure that God has available to you. We can hide our leper skin and the disastrous circumstances we find ourselves in, or we can step out of denial and admit the state to which we are in and move with help towards the hope and redemption and reconciliation and regeneration that is found in God's word. And from one leper to another, let me encourage you to take that step of faith. I'm not saying that it will be easy, but if you stay the course, it will be worth it. And when you find that treasure for yourself, you too will share the good news with others. And this is how the gospel spreads and will spread in the Waterloo region with lepers who find spiritual treasure returning to their families and community who are also hungry and starving and telling them about the treasure they have found. Let me now move on to the Tav section. In the previous section, we looked at the desperation of the psalmist in the midst of his turmoil with powerful people around, around him and after him and how he has experienced like the lepers the treasure that is God's word in the midst of his troubles. I want to transition to this final section of this great psalm. And we notice that as the psalmist approaches the end of the psalm, the fervency of his petitions grow. But there seems to be a breakthrough like he's arrived at the feet of the great God whose help he is seeking. This closeness quickly leads him to humility and recognition of his limitations. In verses 169 and 170, 170, the psalmist says, May my cry come before you, Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. The Hebrew term translated come before usually refers to the presentation of an offering before God. And the only offering the psalmist can present here is a cry for help. God, I've got nothing to offer you but a plea for mercy. And some of you are there right now in the circumstances you find yourself in. It's like the blind man in Mark's gospel who cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What does Jesus do? He gives that man sight. In a similar way, the psalmist here is asking God to give him spiritual sight into his word. What he is saying is, God, the way you think, that's how I want to think. God, renew my mind. Whatever hardship I'm going through, yes, I desire deliverance. But Lord, do it according to your word. May it not be from some manipulation on my end that goes against your word. So often in the midst of uncomfortable realities, we just want a way out and we don't care how. But not so with the psalmist. He wants God's deliverance in God's way. 
And this takes us to the final verse of this great psalm, which appeals to God's loving pursuit. And quite frankly, you might have noticed this, but the psalm ends in an unexpected manner. After writing extensively of the value of God's word and his trust in it, he writes, I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. And while it may be an unusual ending to such a masterful articulation of trust and dependency on God's word, I think the psalmist is, incredibly, is an incredibly honest follower of God who has stepped out of denial about who he actually is before the Lord. See, although he has chosen the law of God to live by, he's not always kept it. And therefore, the psalmist ends his lengthy poem with a confession and a plea for salvation. I think this is an important example for us who have been with Jesus for some time. See, there can easily develop within us a sense that we're more cleaned up or sanctified than we really are. And sometimes we can feel the pressure of looking a certain way, so instead of, a, of humbly dealing with our shortcomings, we compromise with a mask and project an image. But the issue doesn't go away, does it? In fact, often it grows as it festers. And the psalmist's example is quite different, though. While his spirit is willing to follow God's law, he admits that his flesh is often weak. For all of his devotion to God's law, he has again and again wandered into other deceitful ways. And like a lost sheep, he must be brought back to his heavenly shepherd. What a confession! What a prayer! How many of you know that this is the kind of prayer that God was pleased with? The kind that says, search me, God, and know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. You may have noticed in the foyer through the course of this series that there's been some paintings on the wall. We're so grateful for the five wonderful uh, artists from our congregation who produced visual representations of different verses they prayerfully pondered in Psalm 119. And I'd like to just highlight one of those paintings for a moment since it captures this final verse of the psalm so nicely. This is the work of Ivan Campos, one of our young adults from our church who has an incredible testimony of Jesus' relentless pursuit of him and how Ivan is responding to that pursuit. And I think Yvonne captured this final verse of Psalm 119 so well. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. Doesn't it also remind us of Jesus' parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15? There the shepherd leaves the 99 to pursue the lost sheep. And he searches desperately and relentlessly for the lost sheep. And when he finds it, he celebrates and rejoices with his friends. And friends, did you know that Jesus cares about you that much? He is pursuing you. To be found, though, means that we surrender and call out to him. To be found indicates that our lives aren't as put together as they may seem to those around us, and we acknowledge our need for help. It's interesting that somehow we think that the longer we've been a Christian, the less dependent we ought to be. The truth is that in the kingdom of God, the more mature we are, the more dependent on God we are, not less. 
To be found by the pursuing shepherd means that we've admitted that in our own strength, we are powerless to rise above the hurts and resentments and unhealthy behaviors and attempts to control. In short, we admit that our lives have become unmanageable. And then, and only then, once this step is taken, what follows is a belief that God exists, that he loves us deeply, and that through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we can be healed and fulfill the purposes for which we were created. And friends, let me tell you that Jesus knows the pain and the disappointments you have. He knows that your life has had many challenges. He knows about how people have hurt you. He knows about the mistakes you have made and are still making and the insecurities you are carrying. And he also sees how you're trying to mask and cope with the pain, which takes you further and further from him instead of nearer to him. But he wants better for you, friends. But it's your decision. Today is Palm Sunday, which is the day that remembers Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem a week before his crucifixion. And while we often remember this as a celebratory occasion, both Matthew and Luke's gospel provide a sobering description of the event. And let me just read to you what I mean. In Luke's gospel, it says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And it said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. So what did Jesus mean by this? Well, I'm not sure if you knew, but the, the, the word Jerusalem means city of peace. But ironically, the city of peace was blind to the very one who could actually provide this peace. Jesus knew that their desire for a political Messiah would bring total destruction in less than a generation. And guess what? He was right. In AD 70, Rome came and just demolished everything. It was totally destroyed. And knowing this, Jesus goes into the city and he weeps. This was a deeply moving moment for Jesus. And his tears were not for his own fate in Jerusalem. And we know a week later he's going to be hanging on a cross. But it's for the fate of the city itself. And some of you parents and grandparents know exactly what this is all about. You do everything you know how to warn your child or grandchildren of the dangers and consequences of poor decisions, but sometimes our loved ones feel they need to learn it for themselves. It's a hard thing to watch. Let me tell you, Pastor Oli, we know this feeling as well. And our psalmist knows this feeling. A few weeks ago, we came across... Psalm 119, which said, Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. When you have experienced the treasure of God's word, it hurts to see others blatantly disregarding it. Certainly, Jesus of all people understood this as he entered Jerusalem. And let me just comment just a bit further on this. Let me do this by underscoring the point that God is not a self-absorbed narcissist whose ego is hurt because we don't follow his laws. He weeps because he's the creator who understands how life operates. He knows the pain that our decisions can amount to. 
And instead, he wants us to avoid the pitfalls in life and to see us succeed. See, friends, his laws bring us life. They don't somehow scratch his ego. You and I aren't somehow doing him a favor by obeying his commands. If anything, we benefit ourselves by taking heed of what he says. Chances are this kind of straight talk cuts to our hearts because if we're honest, we know we've fallen short in obeying God's word. Perhaps we are even perpetually disregarding his commands right now without any remorse. Let me inform you that Jesus knows and you don't need to hide it from him. Here's what he has already done for you and me. This is incredible. Look at this passage in, in Isaiah. It says this, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, but get this, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isn't that incredible? Maybe for some in here, going astray hasn't been anything immoral, but perhaps you've allowed fear or doubt or unbelief in God's love for you into your heart. See, whatever the case, all of us receive him the same way by acknowledging the reality of our situation and coming back to him with faith and humility. Friends, he wants to meet with you and guide you back. God doesn't want you to run away from him, but to run to him. In Yvonne's painting, the sheep who has strayed is hiding and seeking cover while the other sheep are in the sunshine enjoying the fertile pasture ground. Isn't this so true to life? When we're struggling with something internally that no one really knows about, we become this onlooker. We feel like an outsider, but really those other sheep grazing could have been in a similar situation last week or last month, but have responded courageously to the shepherd's invitation to come into the light about their situation. So often the enemy of our souls tries to keep us isolated. Filling us with lies that somehow we're the only ones struggling with what we're experiencing. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe it's fear of the future. Some form of addiction. Past abuse in your life and its effects on on, on your current life, on reality of life. Maybe it's trouble with boundaries in your relationships. Maybe it's failure in school or your workplace or maybe your marriage. Whatever it is, Jesus is seeking you, friends. And yes, your fur may be tangled from your time hiding in the bush. It might even have some burrs and branches caught up in it. But Jesus can clean you up if you give him a chance. Yes, it might hurt a bit as you have to go through the process, but he won't leave you, friends. He's not that kind of guy. And as we courageously open up to him, we discover that God's word is a great treasure for those who humbly search for it and receive it. And as we search, we will also discover that the good shepherd's loving pursuit, we discover the good shepherd's loving pursuit and, and, and warm embrace toward us. Friends, are you ready to respond to him today? Would you bow with me in prayer?